you would be enthusiastic about staying at your job if you were really happy. I think that's part of the problem is that we keep doing the same thing. Putting our teammates first, putting our team first as individuals, making sure that we show how caring we are as a, a group. We've always had the philosophy that employees should be looking at the culture fit. And we as organizations should look at the culture fit as well. For flexibility for someone's job, what you are actually saying is, I trust, I value you, not just as an employee at our company, but you also have value as an individual. Welcome to The Human Factor, where we talk people, culture, and resources for humans. From communication specialist to becoming the CEO whisperer, I talked to Janet Stovall, global head of DEI at Neuroleadership Institute. Good morning. You are listening to The Human Factor. I am your host, Cole Evans. I am really excited. Uh, We are on two different time zones. I'm still working on a cup of coffee here, but I am really excited to jump into this conversation with uh, our new friend here at Work Zynga, Janet Stovall. Janet, uh, not only thank you very much for your time and making the space for us, but I have so many questions. I want to dive in head first. Are you ready? I'm always ready. Let's go. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. I uh, I spent some time over the last few weeks really uh, looking at your content and looking at um, some of the things that you have put out over the years. And I here's what really came to mind, Janet. You know when um, I've been attending a lot of conferences lately, and you know when you hear people talk and you're like, they don't really mean that. They don't, it, it's just not there. You know, you can just tell it's been on a postcard or a note card somewhere. It's that thing they've said for years or whatever, and they got the stage and they're saying it. I, I, I'm immediately drawing context to that because I couldn't stop. I actually went back uh, a couple of days ago and watched it again. Your uh, TED talk that you did in 2018, I, I you know, aside from uh, 2.2, pushing 2.3 million views, um, it had a lot of what I call in the wonderful South meat and potatoes, right? It had a stickiness to it that really opened up um, my eyes to someone of your expertise defining diversity versus inclusion. I have so many questions. So let's let, let me do the intro now that I'm five minutes into it. Uh, before leaving executive uh, communications uh, with UPS, then moving on to the senior director of the social impact at the UPS Foundation, uh, Janet Stovall is no new individual when it comes to diversity and inclusion uh, to companies. Today, she is just a few months into your new role. Congratulations as the global head of DEI at Neuroship. I'm sorry, Neuroleadership Institute. Um, I'll stop doing the talking now, Janet. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm loving this conversation already. Good. Janet, tell our audience real quick a little bit about what the Neuro uh, Leadership Institute does and why um, it was a, a perfect fit for you when they came a calling. Well, the mission of the Neuro Leadership Institute is to make organizations more human through science. So we focus on what the brain does and how focusing on the brain can help you change behavior at scale. Specifically in the DEI area, you know, we're looking at the things that happen in your brain that make people do the wrong things. So maybe we can then habituate change at a bigger, at a greater scale so you can do the right things. Um, Because the one thing is true, if you have a brain, 
you've got some kind of bias. So the question is, what do you do about it? You can't get rid of it, but can you change your behavior? And we believe that you can. We just have to show you how. Um, it's a perfect fit for me because one of the things, two things. One of the things is that my background is really communications. And it may sound self-serving, but I happen to believe that 90% of DEI is communications. Mm. Of course, you have to have programs. Of course, you have to have um, metrics and those kinds of things. And there are people who do an excellent job of building those things. Where we seem to have a gap, but where we need it the most is communications. So I started out that way. As you mentioned earlier, um, before I came to NLI, I was at UPS. I was a speechwriter for the CEO. And at the time, I was probably the only Black speechwriter working in the Fortune 500. That's changed in the past year or so. There are a couple more. But um, the benefit of being in that role and being who I am in that role meant that I got to do a lot of CEO whispering. But I've been doing that for years because I owned my own agency for 21 years before coming to UPS. Right. So I'd spent, and as you get older and people listen to you, I think you got more sense than you know you did when you were younger. <laughs> people started listening to me. So I got to, I became a CEO whisperer. And because my passion was DEI, I was able to talk to CEOs and kind of get in their heads and help them sort of, figure out what their vision should be. And from that, you know, they start saying, okay, I got this vision. How am I going to make it happen? So I was able to move into the role of helping them make that happen. Coming to NLI gives me an opportunity to do what I really believe, which is make it objective. Because that's a challenge with DEI. It is so subjective. Everybody interprets it differently. Everybody thinks, you know, it's the right thing to do, but they don't know what that means. But starting with the brain gives me a chance to look directly at it and say, okay, this is where it starts for everybody. How can we objectively do something to change behavior? Because that's what I care about, changing behavior. Janet, you talk about, um, and I led to it earlier, diversity and inclusion. You you define those differently and honestly, very directly in a way that I haven't heard people in the HR space uh, define it. And, and I'll get into that in a second. Let's tell our audience a little bit about uh, Project 87. So you are, um, I, I won't take all of it, but uh, Davidson, is it North Carolina? Is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. So Davidson, North yep. Carolina, you were born and raised there or graduated college there? I did graduate from college. I grew up in North Carolina. I wasn't born there, but I grew up in North Carolina and I did graduate from Davidson. Okay. And so as the story goes uh, between Black students, professors, the studies uh, around uh, African-American studies, uh, Black deans, you drew a a, a huge kind of um, chart out to say, um, here's the challenge. You, you then go in in the TED Talk to talk about the 77-page report that you put out. Tell our audience a little bit about, number one, who are you giving this report to? And uh, number two, what was the measurement? You talk a lot about time. Um, what, what was the measurement of time that the group that you rolled this report up to uh, was able to kind of take in and run? Well, it didn't happen by, by 87, because the point is, I was writing that that report and doing that doing Project 87 in 1984. And, you know, when you get 20 years old, you think the world could change a lot faster. I did. Um, and the whole point of Project 87 and the reason it was such a game changer at Davidson, which surprised me, honestly, because I didn't think it was that revolutionary. I didn't. But the reason it was, was because what I basically said after spending three years as a junior, after spending three years of subjectively saying, this place isn't okay. These things aren't okay. We need to do better. I said, okay, let me tell you exactly how to do it. Because my goal has always been figure out what needs to be done 
make sure it's something that the organization can do and put it out there because then the organization has a choice. If you can do it, and we all agree that you can, but you don't, then you're choosing not to. And then I say, okay, then fine. I know where we stand. And I kind of did that to Davidson. So it kind of you know blew things up. The report that came out of that was done before I left and it went to basically the entire university, because each one of these things had to be dealt with. The head of faculty had to deal with the fact that we didn't have any Black professors. Um, the head of, of um, curriculum had to determine whether or not we were going to get studies. It didn't happen by 87. I'd say probably it started changing at least five to seven years after that. And, um, and then probably about five, six years ago was when the Africana Studies Department debuted. It may have been sooner than that. Um, but now there's a full Africana Studies Department there and it stems directly from Project 87. So it took a while. Um, you know, I didn't, I, I should have known it wasn't going to take two years, but you know, what do you know at 20? So it seemed like good, it seemed like a good number for me. Right. <laughs> In 2018, you drew attention to there being three uh, CEOs in the Fortune 500. Uh, right before we jumped on, I looked up, and today there are six. Um, yeah. So, so while uh, four years doubling that number, it is still a drop as compared to what you draw attention to in the TED Talk of being. I remember the stat of specifically eighteen uh, percent black. If you were really looking at uh, diversity within your workforce, you you draw an extension a distinction between how many, uh, what percent uh, would be black, what uh, percent would be Hispanic. Talk to our audience a little bit about conversations that you that you have had in the past. Uh, or that you're having today with companies, when you look around the room, I have to believe if I paint a broad brush, you're looking at middle to old white men. Talk yeah. to us a little bit about what that has looked like, even in the smallest changes uh, in, in from, from your view. And what do you believe is really the obstacle that doesn't matter the size of the company? What is this wall that executives and leaders keep, keep, keep hitting when it comes to looking at different faces around the room or, or being intentional about putting different faces around the room? Well, I think the biggest challenge to diversity is a very basic one that we don't really believe it when we say that diversity is valuable. We say that. We say it's the right thing to do. I think intuitively we, we believe that we should know that. But the way I look at it is like this. If you take Let's take UPS, for an example. You know, they have a lot of things that they have to do, and they have a lot of things that they consider their resources, their valuable things that they need. For example, those big brown package cars. That's a resource for them. You know what they do? They keep those clean. They keep those, uh, they, they send those to the automotive teams to make sure that they run right because it's a resource. It's valuable to them. Take diversity. If we thought, if we truly believe that diversity was valuable, we would invest in it. We would make sure that it was where it should be. We would make sure the numbers were there so that we could get everything we got out of it. So I think that that is really the biggest hurdle is that we see diversity as a nice to have. We have not yet embraced it as a necessary to have. And when we do that, I think it will happen. Now, the question is, how do you make that happen? Well, you hear over and over we hear a lot of the stuff about, you know, the browning of America and how the whole world is getting more diverse. That's true to an extent. Um, 
some of the numbers seem like they're changing faster than they are because they changed the census and people can self-identify in a different way. So that changed it. But the reality is, is that even if the numbers change, if the power structure does not change, then nothing's really going to happen. And the reality is, is this is systemic. No one organization is at fault. No one person is at fault. This is the system. And the system works as designed. And if you just look at America, just alone, America was built on racism. So, and it's baked in. And the, and unless you you can't change you can't change history. So the question is, what we're talking about are systemic shifts. I just happen to believe that business is the place where those systemic shifts are going to happen. I happen to believe that business has the resources to do that one organization at a time. You talk about um, business being the only one that can um, dismantle racism. I, I really liked in um, in the examples that you give, you give the data to the amount of kids. You said schools can't do it. You talk about churches. You talk about uh, in the low 30s percentiles of people that uh, even attend church, much mm-hmm. less the, the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday that you speak about. Um, let's talk about um, a little bit deeper into businesses. Is it truly just the, the volume play of where the majority of all of us go for a majority of our lives? Is it really just that simple? Uh, if it's um, if it's not fixed there, if it's broken there, it's going to be a ripple effect across. Absolutely. I mean, and that is the problem. It isn't fixed yet. Right. Um, so, yes, we do spend a third of our lives working for somebody. We may not like showing up, but we got to eat. We, we, we are accustomed to things like, you know, food, shelter. We like those things. So we go to work every day. And if you are in a place where you are working next to people who are different from you than you, you can no longer not know. Most of us, if we leave the office and look around the people we're with every day, they look just like us. Mm-hmm. I mean, we go to church with the same people. Our kids uh, live in neighborhoods. live in neighborhoods with the same people. Neighborhoods are segregated. Schools are segregated. Um, you know, churches are segregated. So if you are never in a space with somebody who is different from you, significantly different, not just, you know, we talk about diversity of thought. Everybody's got, there's no, everybody's a diverse person. Okay. Cause there's no one person that's, that's the same as somebody else, but in the more, the more, the more difference, the bigger categories of difference, you may, that may be the only place that you are ever in contact with somebody that's different. So if we could fix this right within organizations, or at least take it Further, which we and truly that has happened already. I mean, if you look at where it, the biggest changes that have happened in terms of pushing diversity and equity and inclusion along, they've happened in the corporate world, period. And so, and they continue to do that. And right. they accelerated in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. So I still believe the business has the resources, it has the know how, and increasingly it has the incentive to do something about this. So if business can do it, you know, I think it'll change a lot of things. What you learn at work, you take home. You talk about the three steps from from Project 87. You talk about real problems, real numbers, 
real consequences. Again, I really like the simplicity of the breakdown because it really is that simple, right? Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, kind of how I've built this up a little bit, but let's talk about how you define the difference of diversity and inclusion. And I'll leave this in a little bit with you're the first um, person that I have heard bluntly say, which I really like, diversity is a numbers game. Tell our audience a little bit about the difference of the numbers game as compared to inclusion. Diversity by itself is counting bodies in the building. Okay. And that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that that's where people stop because they, even in the metrics that we build, we just count bodies in the building. If you have diversity and you don't have inclusion, you have chaos. I mean, because let's face it, at the end of the day, you're putting very different people in a space and just saying, okay, go for it. Right. Go do it. Guess what happens? It doesn't work. Um, So you have to have inclusion. And ultimately, what you're reaching for, should be reaching for is equity, Um, not equality. I think that is a wonderful aspiration, but that's not realistic because we can't we can't even do that. But we can create equity, but it starts with inclusion and they're not the same things. Diversity is something that you have. Inclusion is something you do. Diversity requires intention to stop because the world's changing. Inclusion requires intention to start. You can, and I say it's my TED Talk, you can create inclusion. You can do that, but you can mandate inclusion, but you have, I mean, you can mandate diversity because you can just say, these are the numbers we're going to hit it, but you have to cultivate inclusion. Inclusion is about intention. It does not just happen organically. And so you have to be committed to making it happen. Janet, do you agree that like Project 87, when it comes to uh, your your three steps, you know, problems, numbers, consequences, what do you believe as far as this time factor? Let me give you an example. So uh, multi-location, small business, um, it, it wants to have stronger DEI practices. They want to start with diversity. They want to really break mm-hmm. up um, um, what the teams look like and, and coming at it from a different angle. Do you believe that company um, should set a time? And, and I'm, I'm really parallel, paralleling this with this like this umbrella of bias on top of every conversation they're in and hiring over the next three to five years. Should, mm-hmm. should a company, no matter the size, say if diversity is an issue that we have seen and we want to challenge ourselves with it, how do they start and keeping bias toe to toe. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? I want to yeah. make sure that I have an. Uh, I want to have a, a, a makeup of 13, 18, 28 percent African American individuals in my um, professional boardroom, in, in in my leadership roles within the company, et cetera. Is it right to set a time limit and to work toward those as a company? Think about this way. When we talk about, you know, in in business, we set business goals, we set SMART goals. And one of the things that's in that, you know, that acronym of SMART is you have to be able to set a time. It has to be timely. You have to set a time frame. So absolutely. I think that would be nice to do. Um, And, but you have to accept the same way I had to do with project 87, that there are other factors that may impact your ability to do that. Um, and here's something I, I didn't have time to say in my TED Talk, but I will say, too. You have to start with what are you solving for? Diversity for diversity's sake is like peanut butter for peanut butter's sake. It makes absolutely no sense. So if you are a business, and I'm strictly talking about business here, you should have something that diversity is solving for. And, for example, 
if you say we're solving for innovation, that's one that we use a lot. Then my response is, okay, what do you need specifically in terms of diversity, in terms of timing, in terms of numbers to solve for innovation? It takes you on this journey of why. We're solving why and what. We're solving for innovation. What does that mean here? Where does innovation happen? Who's on the innovation teams? What, what ideas are getting presented? What ideas are getting forwarded? What ideas are getting funded? And you back into that and you may discover that the numbers are different from what you need. You may discover that the timeline is different than what you need. But if you start there with what it is you're solving for, you're going to end up with a timeline. But I absolutely think you need a timeline. It's another level of accountability for getting actually getting this done. And accountability of all the things that, that I said, the real numbers, real, real problems, real numbers, real consequences, that's the big one. That's the one you asked earlier, where are we failing with this? It's because we don't have accountability. We don't put really strong measures in to make people do this. And I know that it's not nice to hear people say that, but if you think about the fact that we as humans naturally, naturally will, we're tribal and we're going to forward and advance and care about the people who look like us. And so if you have one group that is, for whatever reason, has achieved dominance, guess what they're going to do? That's bias. That's survival of the fittest. That's all that stuff. That's just human nature. So if you want to change that, you have to put something in place that gives people an incentive to change it because they don't naturally have an incentive. doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means they're human. And so you have to give people an incentive. And that's where accountability plays in. And people have different ways of doing it. Some companies do disincentives. Some people do incentives. Doesn't matter. Carrot stick, whatever it is, you got to make it work. Janet, it's so funny from three years, I'm sorry, four years ago, watching a recording of you to today, live, prime time, (laughs) I uh, have heard you now say the same thing. And I I feel like it's a common denominator, which is like, and, and I'll use my own words, but accountability. Uh, incentive, whatever word you want to use, you are, I won't say big on, but you definitely draw attention to the word consequence, right? Absolutely. Right. I really like like that where it's not all, you know, butterflies and sunshine, you know, you're hired to do a job. If you're not doing that job, you're not going to have that job. Same thing in, in setting goals, just like we're talking about here, just like you did back in 1983. And it's important to set goals that actually have some some weight to them. So for example, one of the things that a lot of companies are doing um, with their senior leadership, because you know this really starts at the top. It, it starts at the top and it flows down. So if senior leaders are not engaged, guess what it doesn't happen? Right. So one of the things that some people are doing, for example, is they're saying, okay, if you hit these diversity goals that we've set, you get a bigger bonus. That's nice. But I think it's better and more effective to say, if you don't hit these goals, you're going to lose the bonus. Yeah. And you know what? You're not just going to lose your bonus. We're going to attach this like 25% of your income. Guess when they start paying attention? Because if you're a multimillionaire and somebody says, I'm going to give you a 5% bonus if you do this, you look at it and they go, that's too hard. I can let 5% go. So what? doesn't mean anything. But you tell somebody that 25% of their compensation or their bonus depends on them hitting goals, suddenly they're paying attention. And let's face it, we do that with everything else. It's not like this is a novel concept. Right. When you go to work and when you are leaders, when you get a paycheck, somebody tells you what you have to do for that. So if diversity, equity, and if diversity and equity and inclusion 
are something that a company values, Mm -hmm. then they will put those same conditions and consequences on it to make it happen. It's nothing different. I have one more question for you. You have been uh, a great conversation, a great way for me to get my morning started here uh, in Nashville. Again, we're talking with Janet Stovall. Janet is the global head of DE&I at Neuro Leadership Institute, uh, previously running many years uh, with the executive team at UPS. And if you have not, like literally hit pause here, jump over to uh, Ted, Google, anything that you can type in a search field and look up Janet Stovall. You're going to love uh, the videos out there just like I have. Uh, Janet, my last question, we ask everyone the exact same thing to close out the episode, which is how do you define workplace culture? Workplace culture. How do I define it? That's an interesting question. I can tell you what I would like to define it as, um, but I believe the culture is basically what people share in a space, shared habits in a space, that makes a culture. And one of the things we talk about in DEI right now is this whole concept of belonging. Um, I'm not a fan, not a fan of that word, because you can't create a culture of belonging. Belonging exists in two ways. Is belonging is sense, you have a sense of belonging, or you have a space of belonging. And you can't create either one of those things. So to me, organizations that really want a space where people have shared habits and where people can truly take advantage of their diversity, truly contribute their diversity, so you can truly leverage it. It's not creating a culture of belonging. It is being intentionally inclusive because you can't make somebody belong and telling them you should have a sense of belonging puts the onus of that responsibility on the person who's been excluded. Mm-hmm. You can't create a culture of belonging because there's no one culture to which everyone belongs. But what you can do is you can adopt, instill, provide consequences for inclusive behavior. And then you can create a workplace workplace culture where people have shared habits in that space, where they have superordinate goals and they're reaching for the same things. And ultimately, that to me is what gives you the ability to change the world because you're changing that there. You're creating that space where people then learn how to work together, how to value each other's differences, how to reach for goals that need that those differences. And guess what? When they go home, that goes with them. So to me, that's what workplace culture is all about. Again, starting with the majority place where the majority of us spend a chunk of our life, right, at work. Uh, Janet Stovall, you are an absolute pleasure. If you want to connect with Janet, uh, check out her TED Talk, any of all of her links, check out our show notes in the episode below. Again, you're listening to The Human Factor. If you like this episode, please do hit subscribe and take about seven seconds. Maybe it's give or take a little bit more, but leave us a comment. Leaving comments and hitting subscribe opens this podcast up to many, many more people. Janet, thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye-bye. 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 Oh, 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 oh,